Everyone knows that. Some days you wake up and you feel full of life and energy. The next day you wake up and you feel terrible and you want to stay in bed. Welcome to The One You Feed. Throughout time, great thinkers have recognized the importance of the thoughts we have. Quotes like, garbage in, garbage out, or you are what you think, ring true. And yet, for many of us, our thoughts don't strengthen or empower us. We tend toward negativity, self-pity, jealousy, or fear. We see what we don't have instead of what we do. We think things that hold us back and dampen our spirit. But it's not just about thinking. Our actions matter. It takes conscious, consistent, and creative effort to make a life worth living. This podcast is about how other people keep themselves moving in the right direction, how they feed their good wolf. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond, but at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, Timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Thanks for joining us. Our guest today is Kino McGregor international yoga teacher, author, producer of six Ashtanga yoga DVDs, a writer, co-founder of Miami Life Center, and founder of Miami Yoga Magazine. Her YouTube channel has reached more than 2 million views within the last year. Kino practices through the fourth series of Ashtanga Yoga. We were fortunate enough to interview Kino on location at a yoga studio in Columbus, Ohio recently. Here's the interview. Hi, Kino. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're really glad to have you. We are here at the site that you just finished. I guess you've got tomorrow to go still. Yes. A, uh, a weekend yoga workshop at our town, our hometown here in Columbus. So we're glad to have you. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. So our podcast is uh, called The One You Feed, and it's based on the parable of two wolves where there's a grandfather who's talking with his grandson, and he says, in life, there's two wolves inside of us. One is a good wolf, which represents things like kindness and love and beauty and the other is a bad wolf which represents things like hatred and greed and fear and the grandson stops and he thinks and he says well grandfather which one wins and the grandfather says the one you feed yeah so i'd like to start off by asking you what that parable means to you in your life and in the work you do well first and foremost to me that parable means that we have a conscious choice that we can make moment to moment of what our life stands for and, and what our actions stand for, that we can choose to create the life that we want by changing our behavior patterns from things that are based in the past into a conscious choice to live a more peaceful life in the future, starting off with changing our behavior in the present moment. So in other words, when we interact with people and situations in our daily life, there's always a temptation to go, you could say, towards the bad wolf. There are always things that will annoy us. There are always things that will activate fear. There are always things that will generate negativity. And if we choose to feed those and we choose to think more thoughts about them and give those more energy, then we'll be going down the same road that we've walked in the past. 
But the whole purpose of yoga is to be able to change the basic habit pattern of the mind and to choose to craft a more peaceful life and a more peaceful response into the world. So every breath that we take is a conscious redirection of our intention into that more peaceful life. And this is the way that the yoga practitioner is able to repattern the, the basic consistency of their choices and ultimately transform their entire life. You, that's something we talk about on this show a fair amount is that grasping for pleasure, resisting mm. pain. And, and you yeah. write about that a fair amount. And you actually say that yoga is not about getting rid of all these things and controlling your environment. Right. It's about keeping your peace of mind regardless of whether you experience ease and flow or stuckness and difficulty. Absolutely. So how does that, how does yoga help someone do that? And then furthermore, how does someone take that? So, it's, I would, I would say similar to meditation, right? You can meditate. You've got that period of time you're meditating. Right. Then you've got your other 23 right. hours of the day. So in the yoga practice, we have this tool called asana, which are the physical postures. And these physical postures are like a laboratory for your nervous system. So the postures are actually not meant to be easy. And many people misconceive yoga and they think, oh, yoga, that's so peaceful. I'll go in and I'll just be at peace. You know, and the same thing I would imagine with meditation. I'll just sit there and I'll be in bliss. Right, right. right. And it's not. Not neither, at all. Neither are. <laughs> <laughs> right. So you go into yoga and one of the first things you realize is this is hard. Like these postures are hard. They're not easy. It's not easy to stand on your head. It's not easy to do a deep back bend. In fact, some of the postures have the specific intention of stimulating a negative response in your nervous system. They actually go in and create a false stress, a stress that's voluntary, a stress that isn't an actual threat to your life. And then when you're challenged, when you're on your physical edge, all of your neurological response to stressful situations is triggered. So if you have depression inside of you, then that gets triggered. If you have anxiety, panic, that gets triggered. If you have anger, frustration, fear, all of those things, they get triggered. Then you get the chance in that moment to retrain how you respond to that stress. So instead of caving into it, instead of buckling and giving up, instead of crying and collapsing, you get the chance to retrain the habit pattern of your nervous system. So you can literally pull into your breath through the power of the breath, you gain equanimity. You gain the conscious control to walk the middle path. You neither fight against those things which you deem as negative or run towards those things which you think are positive. You don't hanker for a pleasant experience and you don't push away the negative experience. You just experience it for what it is, whether it's pleasurable, whether it's painful. You take your breaths in the posture, following the healthy technique to make sure that your body is safe, and then you move on. So you neither feed it nor you uh, nor you fight against it. And it's really that middle way that's the essence. Now, the idea with the laboratory of the yoga practice is that whatever is inside of you gets triggered. So if you have all that stuff inside of you, it gets triggered. You work on it. The idea being that those basic patterns then are replicated in your life. So the next time you experience anxiety, depression, this sort of thing, you actually are given the instruction to use the same tools that brought you into peace and equanimity in the asana. So for example, if a situation comes up where you're having a panic attack, which a lot of people actually experience extreme anxiety in, mm -hmm. say, deep backbends, then you, whatever is the tool that got you through that same emotional state, through the laboratory of the physical posture, or the asana is meant to be replicated in your life. So for example, if when you're in the deep backbend and you experience that panic arising, if what got you out of that was to engage your pelvic floor, take five conscious deep breaths, open the eyes, gaze at the tip of the nose, then you're asked 
to redirect your mind to that task in the moment that your neurological system produces that same response in your life, which I think would be amazing. I mean, imagine if every time someone got really mad at you and you wanted to fight back, instead of fighting back, you just squeezed your pelvic floor and took a deep breath. If it was really annoying, you looked at your nose, right. you know? I mean, the world would be a really peaceful place. It Everyone would be. Everyone would be staring at their nose all day. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I'm going to squeeze his pelvic floor here. <laughs> so um, how early in, and I don't want to go too deep into deep yoga practice. Mm. We, we're, a, we're a general podcast. But how early in the yoga practice, I do yoga semi-regularly, how early do you start finding those negative emotions? Is it, so, you've, you've described back bends as mm -hmm. a certain one and other ones. Um, do you find that really from the beginning or a lot of times does it take a little while till you get into the ones that really mm. trigger a strong emotional response? I think that depends on what type of class that you join because there are some classes that have as their intention yoga for simple health benefits. Mm -hmm. And then these postures are meant to be, they are in those classes, they're meant for uh, the postures to be easier and students are not encouraged to find that edge inside of themselves. Um, so there are certain styles of yoga that are based in the spiritual lineage of this practice, which see, have as their intention the equalization of the two opposing forces of pleasure and pain, of inhalation, exhalation, of openness and activation, this sort of thing. Lineage-based styles of yoga can actually bring you up into that right from the beginning. And sometimes people are not necessarily interested in that from the beginning. And so yoga that's interested, say, in just health or fitness-oriented yoga um, is sometimes more popular. But in, for example, in the kind of yoga that I practice and teach in the Ashtanga method, it's right from the beginning. You know, it comes, it comes at you right, right from the very beginning because it's right from the beginning. You're asked to follow the, the method. And sometimes people even have a reaction to following a method. So then mm -hmm. already they're being triggered. I had actually a situation with a student recently who I was teaching her the method and she just did not like it. She just said, well, I don't want to do that. I want to do like this and I want to do that. These are all my preferences and I paid good money to take your class and I think that you should deliver that to me because that's what I paid for. And she just went on and I had, and I just calmly had to restate to her again and again, this is the method. If you want your money back, you can get that. But I, this is the method and this is the goal of the method and I can't teach you anything else. If you want something else, you have to go somewhere else. We worked through that and over the course of about two weeks, she really uh, was able to see some uh, patterns inside of her related to anger and frustration that through surrendering to the method, she was able to work through on, on at least a, a, an initial level. How do you know if you are dealing with that type of yoga, the type you're describing, it's mm. a very, sounds like a very lineage-based practice is, is a good word for it versus another type because a lot of the things tend to be common right even in yoga classes that are supposedly fitness you've got the sun salutations are happening mm -hmm. some of the basic things there's a there's a little nice reading there's incense burning yeah. right what's how do you how do you know well i guess it's a little bit like how do you know when you're in you're, you're where you're supposed to be in your life. You know, I feel like you attract the situations that are really appropriate to, to what you're yearning for. I discovered the Ashtanga yoga method as, as a result of a, a genuine desire for how to live a more peaceful life. Mm -hmm. I was going through a period of darkness and I turned 
to this method of yoga. I turned to yoga. I didn't know that I was going to find Ashtanga yoga, but I, I, I was, I had the intention of, I want to start yoga in order to lead me to live a more peaceful life. And from that intention, I was led to the Ashtanga yoga method. So first and foremost, I think that if that desire is in the heart of the student, naturally they will experience that, uh, they will find that eventually, um, through the power of attraction, just through, just through their sincere desire. The second thing I would say is that if you can do the research, find out who your teacher's teacher is mm-hmm. and your teacher's teacher's teacher and, and and look for someone that is steeped in not just the physical asana, but who is steeped in the spiritual journey of the practice that understands the compassionate heart that comes from years of dedication to a true spiritual practice. I think that's really interesting. We, uh, we released an episode recently with a... Um, a Lama, a Buddhist Lama, who's in a very old lineage. And that, that conversation sort of came up from her about finding out who your, who your teacher's teacher teacher was. And, um, I also find interesting at the same time that we end up talking to a lot of people, um, who are start, who take those things, yoga or meditation outside of their tradition, Mm -hmm. outside of the tradition, and yet still seem to provide benefit Mm -hmm. to people in some ways. And I just find that dilemma Mm. always always kind of interesting to explore Mm. yeah i mean i think that there's particularly in yoga you can clearly see that there are asanas yoga postures that can be taken just for health benefit and have no intention further than that the asanas are physically very very healing so i think there if the student's intention is simply to get more healthy then there are there are ways to do the practice to actually accommodate that. But if the student's intention is to walk down the spiritual path and truly find a transcendent peace that's outside of the realm of pleasure and pain, something that is beyond the ups and downs of the of the sensory world, then naturally that student will keep searching for the teacher that can provide that experience. Okay, back to the interview. Any physical activity, any sport, mm-hmm. you you come up against that that point you talked about the the. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Uh Thank God for deliverance. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place 
for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Place where you feel like you can't do it. Yes. You're being pushed too far. Yeah. How is yoga different than other athletic things that take you to that point? How is it a better way to learn to transcend and deal with that, perhaps, than some of the others? Well, as far as I can see, um, the idea with yoga is that when you reach your limit, you're not forced to surpass it, and you're not forced to sacrifice your physical health for any aesthetic or material goal. Whereas my husband, who was a dancer for many years, he always had his primary concern in dance as the aesthetic performance. So in many ways, he would reach a physical limit, but he needed to surpass it in order to achieve the aesthetic form. So he would sometimes sacrifice his physical body in service of, in service of, you know, the temple of aesthetics, the temple of beauty in dance, which is awesome. It's what he wanted to do. Now in yoga, we don't have the goal being the physical form. So it's not the aesthetics that matters. Instead, it matters what the inner experience is. So it doesn't really matter where you reach your limit. It also doesn't matter if you surpass it, but it simply matters that you go, you touch it, you experience it. You don't force your body to go beyond any limit. In the simple state of experiencing your limit every day, the pure faculty of awareness will naturally expand your limits. You don't need to try to push through them. You don't need to sacrifice your physical body. So it's generally has the potential to be very physically safe if done with patience and non-attachment. But if you try to sacrifice your physical body for the attainment of any external result, whether it's an aesthetic result or the result of a posture, which would actually be aesthetic, then you're sacrificing the inner journey. So ideally yoga is an inner journey that uses these physical limits just as a mirror so that the student really the spiritual the, the the spiritual aspirant can figure out who they are when they're at that limit. You talked just a minute ago about how you were drawn to yoga. Can you tell us a little bit more about the story of where you were, what brought you to yoga and and your journey so far? I can look back now on my life and I can see that from the time that I was a little girl that I've gone through periods of depression, that I've gone through periods of intense searching and intense questioning. And I can see that when I turned to find out how to live a more peaceful life, I was going through a period of depression and I was in a very dark place and I was seeking to try to mask my sadness with an endless stream of parties and an endless stream of, you know, external pleasure. And at some moment, it just got me burned out. At some moment, it just stopped working. Um, you know, the things that had brought me escape no longer led to escape. It's like my depression was waiting for me at the end of all of the sensory pleasure. So I woke up one day and I just said, I need to get out of this cycle. I need, I want to live a more peaceful life. And it was from that desire that I, you know, uh, turned to a yoga class. And it was my luck that uh, I looked at a sign near where I was working at the time. And it said, Tuesday, Thursday, Ashtanga yoga. And so I joined that class and I had done yoga on and off, like uh, in random classes and out of books, but I wanted to make a commitment of, to, to join yoga as a spiritual path. And that's when I found the Ashtanga method. Within less than a year after I took that first class, I had already been to India for two months and I'd already met Patabi Joyce and Arsharat Joyce, his grandson, the two people who were my teachers. So it didn't take you long. You found, you found <laughs> something that, that helped really quickly and 
yeah. kind of went all in. Absolutely. So that that nature to be sort of all in, and I think I read something you wrote where you talk about you your your nature is to be like that, to go kind of yeah. all into things and really just give it everything. And you approached yoga like that mm-hmm. to start. Talk about how you've learned to find that middle way mm. over time. I think that, first of all, when I found yoga, um, I had never been clear about anything before in my entire life. So that clarity was probably the most enlightening thing that I'd ever experienced because up until then I was wandering, you know, I just thought, well, maybe I'll go to graduate school. Well, maybe I'll do this. Well, maybe I'll be an academic. Maybe I'll be a journalist. Maybe I'll do this. Maybe, I'll, you know, and it was just, nothing was really a big pull. My parents were really concerned, you know, they were like, Oh, what are you going to do with your life, dear? And I'm like, I don't know, you know, maybe I'll work in a club the rest of my life. And you know, maybe I'll do this, maybe I'll do that. And then when I, after I did that first yoga class, I immediately knew I wanted to take another one. And it was the first instant. And then when I read uh, my teacher's book, Yoga Mala, you know, Guruji Sri K. Patabi Joyce wrote this book called Yoga Mala. And the night that I finished it, I had a dream about him. And I woke up from the dream and I just knew I have to go to India. And I bought the ticket. And it was the first thing in my life where I thought, this I want to do. I am doing that. And it was the first time in my life that I was clear about something. And I followed it. And even though I was clear about it, I had all this resistance. So uh, the flight to India is 24 hours. Mm -hmm. And then there's a four-hour taxi from Bangalore Airport into Mysore. The entire almost 30 hours of the journey, all I did was think about how I wasn't going to bow down to some man. That's all I thought about for 30 hours. Because the tradition, Indian tradition, you put your hands on the teacher's feet. I was like, I am not putting my hands on someone's feet. And I just went (laughs) out. Yet, when I got there, I looked into Guruji's eyes. My hands were on his feet before my mind could question and yeah. my, I really felt like my heart opened to him in that moment. I didn't know, but that meeting would forever change my life. So now, rather than push forward and try to force things to happen, what I've learned from 15 years of practice is that when things start to happen, whether it's an asana or whether in the yoga posture or something in my life, I just wait and experience right? And then I wait for things to reveal themselves rather than uh, try to force and make things happen. I used to be really attached to, oh, I've got to make this happen. I've got to get to India. I've got to do this. I've got to spend this much time there and try to plan everything. And over, especially the last couple of years, I've, the, the thing that my practice has taught me the most is to just show up and be present and then to wait for, to wait for things, to that, wait to see what wants to happen. And then when that happens, to meet it with equal force and energy so that there's, um, less force and more receptivity, you could say. I've studied a lot of Buddhism, and yet I had never heard um, the idea that the the Buddha's definition of truth was what works, Mm. which I love because that's what I I love about Buddhism. And and you wrote that. But what what you go on to talk about next is what really uh, interests me is that you talk about, you say, if we look again at the Buddha's definition of truth as what works, we see that what works constantly changes. What works one day will not necessarily work for every day that follows. Right. And, and talk about, talk about what you mean by that. 
Well, in the yoga practice, our body is constantly changing. So we get this constant mirror of our body, but the body's never the same. I mean, everyone knows that. Some days you wake up and you feel full of life and energy. The next day you wake up and you feel terrible and you want to stay in bed. Now, if you have to do this physical practice, you have this mirror for that every single day. If you force yourself in your physical body to try to replicate the same type of experience, you will harm your body. So the truth of Monday could be that you're tired and heavy. So then you have to honor that. And so what works in your practice when you're tired and heavy is different than say Tuesday. Maybe you slept really well and you wake up cheerful and joyful since something else is different and then you follow that. But you can't force, you can't hold on to the past and try to make it the present. You can't hold on to the present and try to make it the future. It's literally that you have to experience your body in the present moment and honor what that experience is. That's on a small individual scale, but I think on a larger scale, especially as yoga teachers, we can get very attached into this is how you do the posture. Well, you know, that's how you do the posture for now. But any yoga teacher will definitely say that how they do the posture, maybe for one year, two years, three years, changes after that. The practice is constantly evolving and you explore things and new things are revealed to you. So there's always a possibility that what works for you one year might not work for you the next year. And that's true with your students, right? If you have 50 students in the room, the same direction is not going to work for right. each of them. So this person's truth is one thing. This person's truth is another thing. This person's truth is another thing. And so there's 50 different versions of the truth. How do you do a backbend? There are 50 different versions of that, one for each student. Each of them all equally valid. And that's something I feel is so important as yoga teachers to be able to embrace all of the different, all of the different ways we can find our path into the experience of ourself. Yeah. And I think that's really profound in a, in a broader sense mm. of that when we, we, some uh, people have a tendency and I've noticed it a lot. They find something that helps them to feel better Yeah, and they become so excited and so passionate about right. it and then that hardens into some sort of dogmatism right that leads to that they can never it's very difficult to transcend and I, i've had moments of that where you're mm. so convinced i've now seen the truth and yeah. i think what you're saying is that truth is always evolving to some degree absolutely Something I wanted to ask you about also, because on this show, we talk all the time about, about the paradox of attachment. Like, we talk about the paradox of going after a goal versus, you know, when, when, when is that a good thing? When is that a bad mm -hmm. thing? When is, um, when is personal change a good thing? Mm -hmm. And when is accepting yourself the way you are mm -hmm. a good thing? And you say that the greatest teaching of yoga is also the greatest paradox of life. Yoga teaches how to walk this thin red line between belief and impossibility, goals and attachment, and temporar temporality and eternity with grace and ease. Mm. Can you talk a little bit more about how, and you've alluded to it, about finding that, that middle point, but I think that's, a, that's an idea that, that I know I wrestle with a lot, mm. which is how do you find that middle point between mm. I, wanna, I, I need a certain amount of energy and goal and drive to, to even push the spiritual process forward mm -hmm. and yet the the spiritual process is largely about letting go and so yeah. how, how have you found that works for you 
The traditional yoga philosophy gives the instruction that we constantly balance all of our efforts between the effortful striving of the path and non-attachment to the fruits of our labor. And this is a very important concept that's presented in Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. And I think in that, we find this way to work very strongly and intelligently while at the same time containing the aspect of surrender. So for example, the traditional story that's presented is the Bhagavad Gita, where the warrior prince Arjuna is asked as his dharma, as his... I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes... I guess identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. life path to be this uh, archer that will play a pivotal role in the battle of the Mahabharata, then he doesn't want to do it. And he ultimately says, you know, I can't do it. I don't want to do this. In the story of the Bhagavad Gita, he sees all of his uncles, his childhood friends, and he sees that his job will be to kill them. His job will be to kill his archery teacher, which is one of the biggest insults that you can make as a student of archery. And his uh, his charioteer is the incarnation of Krishna, is Krishna, the incarnation of God. Now, what Krishna says to him is, Arjuna, in this moment, you must focus with your life force as the archer, as the divine archer. You must focus on your goal with the full attention with precision and detail, with your full life force. That is your goal. This is your dharma. You must focus on it. And then in the moment you release the arrow, it's what Krishna says to Arjuna, surrender the fruits of your action to me and it will be my arrow. And your work will be my work. And whatever you attain, you will attain through me. So that when the action is done, it is not his karma. It's not Arjuna's karma, but it's Krishna's karma. Like that in the world, when you direct your attention towards your goal, while at the same time giving your full attention to it, simultaneously realizing that whatever you attain, you attain through the grace of God. You do not attain through your own efforts. So you release your attachment to the goal. So you have strong effort simultaneously balanced with ultimate surrender. And then when you attain the result, you have your humility because you know you didn't do it. You know, that it came to you rather than it was something you forced and you worked into being. You showed up. You did mm -hmm. your dharma. And then what you receive comes from a power much greater than you. And in that sense, we're able to maintain our connectivity. We're able to keep our hearts open, you could say, and not be too narrow-minded um, in terms of what that goal might be. Because we release our attachment to the goal. Another thing that I, uh, I, I read that you talked about, and we... we it's a favorite phrase of mine, which mm -hmm. is a little bit of something is better than a lot of nothing. <laughs> and you talk about that. You've got a very busy schedule before mm -hmm. the interview. We were talking about 
how often you're on the road, yeah. which is a, is a lot. And mm-hmm. you're clearly writing articles and writing mm-hmm. books. And, and so how is that idea that a little bit of something is better than a lot of nothing play mm-hmm. out in your life? Well, I think for me, the little bit of something that I have, first of all, is that I treasure what little bit of time that I have at home. And I really, really enjoy the days where I don't have any appointments and I don't have any schedules. And I don't really need like a lot of those days. Otherwise, I would think I would just be in a state of luxury, you know. Right. And uh, for me, the idea of treasuring those little moments of waking up and seeing the sunrise and it's mango season in Miami right now and when we have a mango tree and picking up some mangoes and just appreciating that and being in the the little precious moment of complete presence without any need to be anywhere else without any need to run around and go on a schedule for me those moments are probably the most the most pleasurable and the most treasurable you tell a story about you're trying to do a one-armed handstand, yeah. <laughs> which you shouldn't be able to do anyway. <laughs> this doesn't make any sense. But you were struggling with it, and you uh, yeah. you asked a uh, somebody who was in the circus yes. to come to come teach you. Yeah. And during that process, you describe the way that you gave in, the way that you mm-hmm. collapsed. Tell us a little bit, because it sounds like it was a big learning moment for Absolutely. you. Absolutely. tell us that story? So when I finished the fourth series of the Ashtanga Method, I started to look ahead and, well, what's next? Then, like, a couple of postures away, there actually is a one-arm handstand in my practice. And I started to get really scared. And I thought, who in the world could possibly teach me this? And then I remembered that the only people I've ever seen succeeded a one-arm handstand are the circus people. So I contacted the circus school in Miami, and I asked uh, their top trainer to come and uh, do a session with me. And at first, he was probably the, one of the meanest trainers that I've ever worked with. Even Guruji was never, he was, Guruji was harsh with me, um, or stern, you could say, but I never felt, I never, I never, I just never felt that Guruji was mean. And at first thing, um, his name is Ricardo Sosa, and he's actually a really awesome teacher. The first thing that he said to me was, I can see right away that you're not strong enough to even do a good handstand. <laughs> and then I immediately sort of felt this kind of collapse sensation, like, Oh, you know, and then he would try. And then as as we began to work together, he would push me to this limit and my body would just suddenly collapse. And then he would yell at me and I would say, I'm sorry. And one of the most pivotal moments was he looked at me and he said, don't say sorry, just do. And I'm someone who always says, I'm sorry. You know, if I do something wrong, I'm always, yeah. oh, I'm sorry. And then I thought about it for a moment. I kind of wanted to cry, but then, you know, I thought, well, let me just do it again. And I thought about it later and I thought, you know, actually, sorry does nothing for him. He's right. You know, what is sorry going to do? Imagine, great, like, let's say you hit someone with your car. Oh, I'm so sorry. Great. What did that do for them? You know, just right. don't do it. If you're truly sorry about something, don't do the action. So, you know, I took that as sort of a, a lesson uh, for me to look inside of myself. And as I mentioned before, I, I look back on my life and I can see that I've gone through periods of depression. And depression is the ultimate quitting. Mm-hmm. Depression is the ultimate giving up. You give up on yourself. And I've gone through periods of my life, long periods of my life, where I woke up with the thought every single day, is life worth living? Not in general, you know, like, is life in general worth living? I always believe that life should continue. But I woke up with the thought, is my life worth living? Is my individual life, is that worth continuing? Because I woke up and I saw all of the pain and all of the suffering around and everything that was around and all of the mistakes that I've made and all of the ways that my actions consciously or unconsciously have harmed other people and the most important people in my life. And I saw that and I I couldn't see the purpose of continuing. And I literally quit on myself every single day. 
And there were very few things that kept me motivated. And in that moment of literally being stronger in the physical body, I found an emotional strength as well that gave me the ability to tune into something that was bigger than any and all of the pain that I'd experienced. And the thing that I've learned the most from that is that love is bigger than any pain. And it doesn't make the pain go away. And I think a lot of people that talk about, oh, well, love is my religion and love this and love that. I don't believe that love makes the pain go away. I think it's actually much more gritty than that, that you still have all of the pain. You still you carry that with you. I don't think it ever leaves you, not while we're incarnate, not here on earth, that the pain is all around you and you're constantly generating new pain and it's constantly pushing you to the edge that you feel like you're going to break, but your love is bigger than that and you love through that and you love because of that and it's grander and bigger than any of the pain. Not because it makes it go away, but because it is bigger than any of the pain you could possibly experience. Wow, that's a great, that's a great story and I think a great way to end. <laughs> so thanks so much for taking the time, uh, in a, in a busy weekend to talk with us. You're I welcome. really enjoyed, uh, the conversation. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure to be here. Namaste. Namaste. You can learn more about Keno McGregor and this podcast in our show notes at oneufeed.net slash Keno.